Well, we're going through the book of Hebrews. Uh, we're going to get into uh, chapter 10 this evening, but uh, we're going to back up as a little bit of an introduction into a couple of verses of chapter 9. So if you want to turn your Bibles there, you can follow along with us. Uh, let me um, just make some summary statements and, uh, and uh, pull away a little bit from the, from the writings of uh, the Apostle, I believe it was Apostle Paul. I may have said that before. I believe it was the Apostle Paul that wrote the book of Hebrews. Um, once or twice. Okay. Uh, anyway, um, I want to pull away a little bit and, and, uh, and approach it from a little different angle before we get into the verse-by-verse part of chapter 10. Because uh, some of the things that are in chapter 10 are, are, in my opinion, some of the most important things to know if you're going to walk in victory as a Christian. Paul says uh, in, throughout the book of Hebrews, his, the whole theme of it is uh, the superiority of Christ over Judaism, the superiority of, of Christianity over Judaism, and the superiority of Christ over different things, different parts of the, the, um, the Jewish system, the Mosaic system. Jesus is a, a greater high priest than, uh, than Aaron or the Levites were. Jesus' sacrifice was a greater sacrifice than any of the priests would offer on behalf of, uh, of Israel. And as such, Paul says some things in chapter 9 about the sacrifice of Jesus that uh, we covered last week, but it's important for us to, to, uh, to at least remind ourselves of what was said in light of what he's going to say in chapter 10. So if you will, I'm going to start reading in uh, verse 14 of chapter 9. He says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit... Now, that's not the Holy Spirit. He's talking about Jesus' Spirit. But through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, notice what he's saying. He's saying, if the blood of bulls and goats operated under the old covenant to serve as a cleansing agent and the sprinkling of water, if that had a, a cleansing property as far as God was concerned, didn't have any natural cleansing property, but if God accepted that as a cleansing agent or a cleansing method, how much more shall the blood of Jesus purge your conscience? Please notice that phrase, purge your conscience. Now, your conscience is what tells you the difference between right and wrong. And it's saying that this purges or cleans or purifies your conscience. Now, folks, here's the reason that most Christians, the vast majority of Christians, I don't know, I, I hesitate to say it's less than 90%, maybe even more than that. But the vast majority of the, of the church, the vast majority of Christians never understand that their conscience has been purified by the sacrifice of Jesus. In other words, their knowledge their understanding, their fear regarding right and wrong has been dealt with. Because that consciousness of right and wrong is the thing that keeps most Christians under condemnation and therefore causes them to walk in defeat. Verse 15, Paul goes on to say, because this is true, because the blood of Jesus purged our consciences from dead works, for this cause he is the mediator of a new testament. Now remember we talked a little bit about the difference between a testament and a covenant. Testament means will. We use that and the only way I do know that we use that is in uh, uh, legal terms where somebody makes a last will and testament. Well, testament and will are the same things, but it's not exactly the same thing as a covenant. The difference between a covenant and a will is that a covenant has to be agreed to by both parties. A will is just a bequest of one, from one party to another party. But a covenant is conditional. In other words, if I make a covenant with somebody, or, or when, well, just let's use the ones that, uh, that we have uh, record of. When God made a covenant with Abraham, both of them had to agree. 
God had to do something. Abraham had to do something. But when somebody dies and leaves an estate or leaves something to them in a will, there's no conditions attached to it. It's just a bequest. And so there's a difference between those two. So he says, and Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant or a new testament that by the means of death. Now, notice this. Notice what it says Jesus died for. For the redemption of the transgressions. It does not say the redemption of the transgressors. It's saying that Jesus died for the payment of sin. Now, that benefits people, but he didn't die for the people. He died to pay for sin. That's what Paul is saying. For the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament or the first covenant, they which are called um, might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Now, skip with me over to verse 26. For then Jesus must often have suffered since the foundation of the world. I'll have to catch up on this. He's talking about the difference between Jesus as a high priest and the, the Levites. He's saying the Levites have to offer the sacrifice, and the sacrifice he's talking about is the Day of Atonement. It's the big sacrifice. It's the one that if you don't carry that out, Israel is, is in a world of trouble as far as God is concerned. It's the, the sacrifice that covers over their sins from year to year. And they make these sacrifices over and over again, and besides that, there were other minor sacrifices that they were making every day of the year. He said, now, if Jesus was operating as the Levites, then Jesus would have had to offer his own blood again and again and again for every generation. There would have to be a Messiah for every generation. But that's not the way it worked. Jesus offered himself one time. So he's showing the superiority of the sacrifice of Jesus as well as the superiority of the priesthood of Jesus. So he says, for then must he also have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world, uh, another translation says in the fullness of time, hath he appeared, was he made manifest for this purpose, notice this, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. See, he's saying the same thing in verse 26 that he said in verse, verse 15. Verse 15 says he died for the sins of the first covenant. Verse 26 says he, he came, was manifest on the earth to put away sin. For it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. Verse 28, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Notice verse 28 connects two things. It connects the cross of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. It connects the cross where Jesus made his sacrifice. That's where he died on, he died on the cross. It connects the event that we know of as the sacrifice or the crucifixion and the event that is yet to come, which is the rapture or the second coming of Jesus. Now, folks, what happens between those two events? Between the cross and the rapture, what happens? The church age. It's where we live. Paul is going from this point, beginning in chapter 10 in verse 1, he's going to talk about the Christian life because that's what's in the, between those two events for you. Between the cross of Jesus, which was made personal for you whenever you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and when he comes back, that's your Christian life. So from this point, Paul is going to talk about throughout the rest of the, the letter that he writes to the Hebrews, he's going to talk about the effectual working of that salvation in the way you live. Okay? Now, there are three words, three parts to redemption that the Jews knew about, that the, that the Gentiles, well, Paul mentioned them, but he never in any other place went into such detail. Three words that he uses in, in different places, in different letters to the church that you, you'll be aware of. You may not know what all of them mean, but there are three parts to redemption. Those three parts are, number one, justification. 
Justification means the payment for sin. Propitiation is the second phase of redemption. Propitiation means God had to be satisfied. And propitiation means he was through Jesus. And then the third is the word reconciliation. It means man was reconciled or reunited together with God. Now, folks, everything that Paul is going to begin talking about beginning in chapter 10 and verse 1 has to do with change. There were three major changes in the history of mankind. The first change occurred when man fell in the Garden of Eden. He became spiritually dead. That's not the way he was made. God made Adam and Eve as representative of mankind to live forever. And it was only when they disobeyed God and and allowed themselves in Eve's case, to be deceived by the devil, in Adam's case, when he chose to follow her into sin, that was the point where everything changed. That was the first change. The second change in the history of mankind is when God became man. That's a big change. Never before had that happened. Never before had it even been contemplated. And most theologians nowadays can't figure out how. The third change occurred when man was regenerated and reunited or reconciled back to God. Now, the Jews understand these things. And and most of the ones that Paul is writing this letter to, and remember, he attached the book of Hebrews, with, or the letter that we know of as the book of Hebrews, with the letter that he wrote to the Galatian church. And he talks about some of the very same things to the Galatians. He must have had, had knowledge in some way or another, whether he just knew what these people were like, or revelation of the Holy Ghost, I don't know. But one way or another, he knew that this thing was going to get back to Jerusalem. He knew that if he wrote a letter to the Jews, the Jews would wind up with it in Jerusalem. The high priests would have access to it. There were many members of the priesthood that were Christians. We don't know to what degree. We don't know if that was a genuine conversion, whether they had accepted Jesus as the Lord or if they were just trying to incorporate Christianity into Judaism because they felt some of their stuff slipping away. We really don't know. From their actions, you could make an argument either way, to be honest with you. But Paul knew this was going to get back to them. And so when Paul starts talking about the sacrifices, when he starts talking about the priesthood, he knows they know this stuff. Their lives revolve around this stuff. Everything about the Jewish lifestyle, while the temple was still in place, and this was written about 66 A.D., about three or four, maybe five years before uh, Rome destroyed the temple in Jerusalem in 70 A.D. They're still making sacrifices. The priesthood is operating day after day after day. People are going to the temple every day. Everything in the Jewish community, at least in Jerusalem, revolved around that temple. Either some sacrifice, either some offering, or preparing for the next time that they're going to have to make a sacrifice. Something, some way or another, everything revolved around the actions of the Levites, the priesthood, and the operation of the temple. So when Paul writes these things about sacrifices, they know what it means. They know what is required of the sacrifice in order for it to be a worthy and acceptable sacrifice to God. Okay? We together? Chapter 10, verse 1. Paul connects Jesus on the cross and Jesus coming back, what we know of as the rapture, or it's also called the second coming. Now he's going to make an argument. He's still talking about the superiority of Jesus, But now he's going to transition into the change aspect. He's made his argument. He's proved his case that Jesus is superior. He's proved his case that Christianity is superior to Judaism. Now he's going to start making the transition into the Christian lifestyle. And what does this change mean? 
We're going to try to get through the first half of the chapter. I'm not sure if we can do it or not, but we're going to try. And the first half of the chapter is very, this chapter is broken right in half. And, and the first half of the chapter is our perfect standing before God. And so he's going to make an argument in the first half of the chapter about why we have right standing before God and they never could have that under the old covenant. So he's still proving the superiority of Christianity and Jesus, but he's going to do it in a little different way now. Verse one, four, I'm going to read down through verse four and then we'll stop and back up. I'm going to spend probably more time on the first four verses than any other because they are so critical to living a victorious Christian life. Not necessarily the verses themselves, but what the verses contain and the principles behind it. If you don't get this, the information that he's trying to give you in the first four verses of chapter 10, you'll never walk in victory as a Christian. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that would, that the worshipers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Paul talks about some things in the, in this letter to the Hebrews that he says in a different way than anybody else that he ever writes to. He talks about things that are impossible. He talks about things that can never happen. He talks about things that are, that, that can't be. And he doesn't do that anywhere else. But he's making the case where the Jews are concerned. He's making the case of the superiority of Christianity over Judaism. And these people are still steeped in Judaism, even if they're naming Jesus as the Lord and Savior. So let's start with verse one. There's a couple of things that we, that a couple of questions that arise from these verses that we just read. Number one is, What's the difference between the shadow and the image? Another question we're going to have to answer is, what does it mean to be perfect? A third question is going to arise, and that is, since the sacrifices couldn't make that happen, couldn't bring somebody to perfection, why did God give them ineffectual sacrifices? Why did he institute a sacrifice that was ineffective? So let's start off with verse 1. For the law having a shadow of good things to come. The law he's talking about is the Mosaic system. He's not just talking about the Ten Commandments. He's not just talking about the, the, the law as it was given to Moses with the 630 commandments. He's talking about the whole system, the priesthood system, the sacrificial system, the whole system of the Mosaic law. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that from time to time. I'll talk about the Mosaic system. Literally, it's Judaism. So he's saying the, the, Judea, the Judaic or Mosaic system was a shadow. It was a shadow of good things to come. Now, what's a shadow? Is there any substance to a shadow? A shadow is caused by something blocking light. This is very very specific language that he's using here. He's saying the mosaic system blocked the light so that we couldn't see what the real was, and that's all we had was a shadow. It wasn't the real thing. It was just a shadow. It was an example. We learned some things from it. But it's just a shadow. So he says the the law, the Mosaic system, having a shadow of good things to come. Now, what does he mean good things to come? He's not talking about good things to come from the point that he writes it. He's not saying now once now that we're Christians, there are still good things to come. No, he's saying that from the time that God made the covenant with with Abraham and it was codified in Moses and the law. He's saying from the time that he made that original covenant, that was a shadow of good things to come that were fulfilled in Jesus. 
So what he's saying is the covenant that we have now, the better covenant established upon better promises, those are the good things that were always promised. Those were the good things God intended from the beginning. So this is what he's telling the Jews. He's saying, you guys are still operating in something that doesn't even compare. It'd be like comparing a flickering candle to the shining of the sun. There's no comparison. There's as much difference between the old covenant and the new covenant as night is to dark. Night is to dark. Night is to day. Light is to dark. Excuse me. So what he's saying is the old covenant, the Mosaic system, that which you keep being bound up by, that which you keep sending out emissaries to other churches, people that have been made, that have Gentiles that have made Jesus the Lord of their lives, those things you're trying to bind them up with, that's a shadow, not the real thing. You're trying to take away the good things in Jesus and go back to something that didn't exist before. Something that you didn't have through the Mosaic system. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image. Well, if the Mosaic system is the shadow, what's the image? Jesus. Jesus is the very image of God. He's the expressed image of God. So Jesus is the image. He's the real. That's what Paul is saying. The very image of things, notice this phrase, can never. Can never. With those sacrifices, the Mosaic system sacrifices, which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. Folks, this is a real poor translation because the word continually means forever. It's not talking about they made the sacrifices forever. He's talking about being made perfect forever. I can prove that to you with verse 14. If you'll just look down to verse 14, it says, For by one offering he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. So the continually or the forever that's translated continually means to be made perfect forever. So he's saying it was it's impossible. The sacrifices of the Mosaic system can never make somebody perfect forever. So what's perfect mean? People get hung up on the word perfect because if they don't have an understanding of having their conscience purged from dead works, then there's this condemnation thing. So what does perfect mean? Well, the word perfect means complete. It means the completion of something to the design, to the, uh, to the, to what it was originally designed to be. And since he's talking about man, he's talking about man being completed or brought back to the original condition that God created him. Now, what was that condition? It's the condition of Adam and Eve before they ever fell. No knowledge of good and evil. No experience with sin. That's what it means to be made perfect. Now, here's what the Jews understood. The Jews, specifically the priests, because they taught this stuff. It's part of the law of Moses. There's a penalty for sin. And that penalty for sin is death. The wages of sin is death. So death is the penalty. Somebody owes for sin. Now, notice I'm not saying sins. There's a difference between sins, meaning the sins that you and I might commit, and sin, the original disobedience and transgression against God. Adam and Eve brought sin into the world through their action. Now, because sin came into the world, people became sinners. In other words, they committed sins. But Jesus didn't die for the sins of the world in that sense. He died for the sin, the penalty or the payment for sin. Something has to die to pay the price for sin. Something has to die. Well, that's what the sacrifices were about. They killed bulls and goats and, and lambs and, and all different kinds of stuff. 
for the purpose of shedding blood so that something would die to pay for sin. But they knew. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 2. Verse 2, it says, For then would they not have ceased to be offered? In other words, he's saying if there was any sacrifice, that, and remember the sacrifice he's talking about is the big one, the Day of Atonement. He says if that sacrifice or any other sacrifice was able to continually or to, to make perfect forever, bring somebody back to a condition where the price was paid, if that was ever possible, then why would there ever need to be made another sacrifice? Because, he says, that the worshipers, the comers in verse 1 or the worshipers in verse 2, he's defining who he's talking about, the worshipers once purged should have no more conscience of sin. Now notice the words that he uses. He says no more conscience of sin. That means they would have had a conscience of sin, but then their conscience would have been purged, and so there's no more conscience of sin. Now folks, please notice that it does not say consciousness. you see that? There's a difference between conscious and consciousness. And, and this is huge. If you're going to walk in righteousness, if you're going to walk in victory in your Christian life, this is huge. What does that mean? Um, well, let me finish and I'll back up and use an example. Verse 3. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance, again, made of sins every year. It seems to me that most people misunderstand the Day of Atonement. Most people have the idea, and I used to as well, but most people seem to have the idea that the Day of Atonement was made yearly. It was, it was the same day every year. It was a holiday. It was a, it was a, a ritual part of Judaism. And every year on the Day of Atonement, the specific day of, that, uh, that, that was designated for the Day of Atonement, there was a sacrifice made for the, for the sins of Israel. A sacrifice was made to purge Israel from their sins. And consequently... If we make, if, if June the 1st, uh, what is it? I think it's something like April the 15th or something like that. But anyway, whenever it is, if on April the 15th is the Day of Atonement, that uh, covers sins until the next April the 15th. So next year on April the 15th, it'll cover all the sins that you committed since last April 15th. That's not the way the Day of Atonement worked. The once a year sacrifice didn't cover the past year. The once a year sacrifice was necessary for all of the sins that Israel was due to die for. That's why it says there's no more remembrance of sins. The Day of Atonement was a day of remembrance. It was a day where Israel was reminded through every aspect, through the bringing of the, the animals, through the shedding of blood, through the roasting of the, of the, uh, the lambs and, and the, the scapegoat, the whole thing. Every part of that was a remembrance to Israel, a reminder to Israel that you guys are dead meat. Because sin has been committed. Original sin was committed, which separated God from man, or got man from God. And on top of that, you're responsible because you committed sins too. Be real easy to sit back and say, well, Adam, what in the world did you do? Well, you messed up too. You can't blame him. If he hadn't messed up and if nobody messed up until they got to you, would have fallen together anyway. Everybody sins. And consequently, the Day of Atonement was a day where they were reminded. They brought to remembrance all of sin. Folks, the Old Testament was about being reminded of sin. 
And nobody could ever have their conscience purged from that knowledge of sin. Knowledge of the original sin and knowledge of their own sins. And so the Day of Atonement became something that was kind of a fire escape. Now that brings us to the third question. Remember I I said there's three questions we need to answer. Question number one is what's the difference between the shadow and the image? The shadow is the mosaic system. The image is Jesus. What does perfect mean? It means to bring to completion according to its original design. Man being brought to completion. That means somebody, something has to pay for the original sin. Because that that penalty of death hangs over all of mankind. Now the third question is, why did God give a sacrifice that didn't work? Paul said it's impossible for the blood of goats and bulls and goats to make somebody perfect. Well, then what's the sacrifice is all about? Why is God making them go through the ritual, making making them go through the, 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 the motions of something that doesn't take away their sin to begin with? Why? Well, there's a couple of reasons for it. Number one, as I said before, it's a reminder of sin. In other words, it shows them their need for a Savior. Everything revolved around the temple. The temple was about sin and the price that had to be paid for sin. Second thing is, it showed them where their Savior was going to come from. In other words, if it takes the shedding of blood, if it takes death to pay the price for sin, then somebody is going to have to be the victim to pay the price for this death. But they missed Jesus. They didn't recognize how it would come. They had in their mind that it would be another way. They had in their mind it would be somebody that that would deliver them from the Roman rule. They weren't looking for a sacrifice. They were looking for somebody to beat up their enemies. And then the third thing is this. Without the Day of Atonement, without the shedding of blood and the sacrifices, God had no way to legally bring blessing on the people of Israel. The Day of Atonement was not about doing away with sin. The Day of Atonement was reminding them that they they owed a price for sin and it was a means whereby God could bless his people. Without that shedding of blood, there's no reason and no, no legal way for God to show blessings to his people. How could he? They're no less sinners than anybody else. Why would God bless Israel and not bless the Amorites or the Ammonites or the Edomites? All the people that wound up being the enemies of Israel. Why would he bless Israel and not them? There's only one reason, and that is because they shed blood according to his direction for the price, a, a down payment on the price for sin. And remember, the wages of sin is death. Something's got to die. Now, when you start talking about sin in the church, especially nowadays, you've got a lot of grace teaching, a lot of people saying different things about the grace of God and different, different stuff like that. Sin is a, is a dirty word in the church, present-day church. Dirty word. The problem with that is that John says, writing by the Holy Ghost, he says, if we say we have no sin, then we lie and there's no, the truth's not in us. So what does that mean? He's saying we're made righteous, but we still have sin. Yeah. Paul said the same thing. Paul said in Romans chapter 7, he said, from my heart, I want to do the right thing, but there's another law in my members. Well, what law is in his members? He has, still has the experience of sin in his flesh. Now, that didn't hold Paul back. Paul didn't roll up, you know, curl up in a ball and say, oh, woe is me. You know, I'm so condemned. He shows us how he overcame it. And how he overcame it is he understood there's a difference between the real man on the inside and the body that we live in. It's like this. 
You might have termites in your house, but that doesn't mean you've got termites in you. Now, folks, if your house, this flesh, is the responsibility given to you by God, it belongs to God. The Bible says both your spirit and your body belong to God. And God has given you and me charge to take care of this body because it, the flesh, is the temple of the Holy Ghost. The reason it's the temple of the Holy Ghost is because the Holy Ghost indwells your spirit and your spirit lives in your body. So you have a responsibility. Every one of us have a responsibility to maintain our flesh, this house that we live in, in an honorable way. So if we use the example of termites, your job is to get rid of the termites. But here's the problem. You can't tent it. You can't just put a tent over your flesh like they do with houses when they're trying to, you know, get rid of termites. You can't just put a tent over your house and give it a one spray, does all, works for everything, kills them all, and now you're good. No, the way that you get rid of the termites is you take the Word of God, which is the spray, and you apply it to individual areas of your life. Now, as you apply the Word of God in one area of your life and learn to overcome in this area, guess what happens to the termites? They run to another part of the house. And so it's a consistent and a constant battle between our spirit and our flesh where we are consistently running the termites out of one area of life, but we find them somewhere else. We may think, that's it, they're gone, praise God, none left. And then two days later you find out, Oh, I've still got some things over here to deal with now, don't I? It's the Word of God that gives you the ability. It's the light of God's Word that chases the termites out of one aspect of your flesh. But the Bible is simply telling us this. When Paul says, if we say we have no sin, we're lying. And the truth's not in us. He's simply saying this. You're always going to be chasing termites. No matter how spiritual a man or a woman of God is, you're always going to be chasing termites. Because there's no way you can learn everything. There's no way you can know it all. Now, that shouldn't be something that brings condemnation. That shouldn't cause you to hang your head and say, oh, woe is me, I'll never make it. Well, Paul was chasing termites all his life. He walked in victory. It doesn't stop you from victory. And it doesn't cause you to feel condemned. That's one of the first places you need to chase termites out of. And that one of those first places is your conscience. But so many Christians are dealing with a termite-infested conscience. Their conscience has been purged, but they don't know it. They don't accept it. And so they go through life feeling condemned. Okay, now let me change examples. Change illustrations. Remember the movie The Matrix? Do you? Most everybody does? Okay. There are some great spiritual applications to the matrix. First of all, Neo, the star, he's dissatisfied with life. He can't put his finger on it, but there's something out there. He doesn't know what it is. And finally, he comes across somebody. And that somebody gives him the opportunity to exchange his life for a new reality. Morpheus offers him the red pill. That's a work... Morpheus is a type both of the Holy Ghost and the Word. It brings knowledge to him of something that he suspected was out there, something that he yearned for, but he wasn't sure. That's what the gospel does. 
And the Holy Ghost brings conviction to us to cause us to understand. Now, let me say something about the conscience. When you first see who you are, you find out you're not a good person. The first information that comes to your conscience is bad. It shows you as a bad person. Your first knowledge of good and evil leaves you on the, on the, the bad side of good and evil. It shows you your shortcomings. It shows you where you fall short. But when you make Jesus the Lord of your life, that conscience is supposed to change because the work that Jesus did, we've just read here several times, it made you perfect forever. The sacrifice of Jesus purged your conscience, meaning the price is paid. You know what a purged conscience means? A purged conscience means very simply this. It means that you're not afraid that God's going to get you for something that you did wrong because Jesus has already paid the price for it. You know, most Christians seem to have the idea that whatever is going wrong in their life now is something that they did in their past that God's finally catching up to. If you did that way with your kids, your kids come in the door and, and you ground them for a month. Well, what, what's that for? Well, I just remember something you did five years ago. You're going to have problems with your kids. You punish them for something that they've forgotten about, something that was supposed to be done away with, something that's supposed to be in the past. You punish them for that, you got a problem. Why would we think that God deals differently than we would as parents? I wish I had a nickel. I'd be a rich man. If I had a nickel for every person that came up to me and said, Pastor Mike, I need you to pray. This is going on in my life, and I don't know. I'm just thinking maybe there's some sin in my life. If Jesus paid the price for sin, then why would you be required to pay it too? That's Paul's whole point. If you've been made perfect forever, if you've been made complete, reunited with God, justification, propitiation, and reconciliation. If the price was paid, that's justification. If the price was paid, nobody else has to pay it. If the propitiation was made, if God was satisfied with the sacrifice, and the Bible says he was, then nothing else has to be done. And if reconciliation has been made, the Bible says, Paul said to the Corinthians, that he, that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, the good news is the price is paid, so tell people they've been reunited with God, all they have to do is make Jesus the Lord of their lives. But folks, it's a covenant, not a testament. Meaning, the responsibility is not just God's, but it's man's too. That's why it takes receiving Jesus to enter into his family. If it was just a testament, if it was just a will, if it was just a bequest, then when Jesus died for the sins of the world, everybody would be automatically saved. But it's not. It's covenant. Which means God fulfilled his responsibility, and you and I have our part to play too. Now, our part to play is first and foremost making Jesus the Lord of our lives. That brings us in. That covers the justification, the propitiation, and the reconciliation. From that point forward, it's just Christian living. Does this make any sense? Okay, back to the matrix. Neo gets saved. He takes the red pill. Then what happens? Then Morpheus starts trying to teach him how to live in that alternate reality. And what does Neo do? He falls short. He tries to make the jump from building to building. Falls onto the concrete. Why? Because as much as Morpheus tries, Neo cannot yet renew his mind 
to the possibilities of this new life that he's in. Is that not what the Holy Ghost and the Word of God does for us? It is designed to open our understanding that we might renew our minds to who we really are. Now, folks, until Neo figures out who he really is, he gets his butt kicked. Just like many Christians do today. But what causes him to finally win? I mean, Mr. Smith beats him up backwards and forwards. But when he finally realizes, when he finally comes to the understanding that he has to look beyond what he can see and accepts who he really is and then begins to see things in a new way. Remember how it all begins to turn into the the code? When he finally realizes who he is and how he can overcome that which he sees with these natural eyes, nobody's a match for him. What has happened? His mind has been renewed to the power that he had all the time. That's what this is talking about. Your conscience has been purged from the penalty of sin. There is no, there is not, God has in, intends for there to be no remembrance of any penalty for sin in your Christian life. Now we'll fast forward a little bit. What does chapter 11 talk about? It talks about faith. Why? Because faith is the key to the Christian life. Faith is the key to operating according to what has been done for us. So, Back to the Old Covenant, New Covenant for the Jews. Old Covenant was all about confession of sin. Why? Because there was still a price to be paid. But doesn't the Bible say that confession of sin is necessary for us as Christians too? Yeah, it does. You know why? Because there are times until we become aware and our minds renewed to who we are and what power we have and how we can overcome the things in this life that we see so that we can walk in victory, we're going to have failures. And God didn't design you to fail. So whereas you've been made perfect in the sense that pri- the price has been paid, you've been you've satisfied, the claims of justice have been satisfied, and you've been reconciled unto God, there are still going to be times where we fall short. Why? Termites in the house. And it's only when we shine the light of God's Word on these different areas of our lives, these different areas of our thinking, That's when we can chase these out and really stand and walk and live in the way that Jesus died for us to be. We've used this before. Remember, Paul said to the Corinthians, quit living like mere men. Well, isn't Paul a man? Yeah, a man whose mind's been renewed to the word. A man whose mind has been renewed to know that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul is Neo after he figures out he's got this handled. You can be too. So what's the difference? The difference in the Old Testament confession was that their whole lives were filled with the knowledge that a price still had to be paid. And no matter how many animals they sacrificed, it didn't do it. They knew it didn't do it. They could fulfill everything that the law said to do, and they still knew that I'm still in the same shape I was with God. We've just covered it over so he can do good things for us. But nothing has changed on the inside. There was no change of nature. Well, what about confession under the new covenant? The confession under the new covenant is us putting ourselves back into the position 
of applying. It's the application of what Jesus has done. The confession in the Old Testament was so that they could get God to overlook what they've done. Under the New Covenant, it's the application of the perfection that we've been given forever. It's not something that we go to God and say, oh, I'm such a lousy person. My righteousness is as as filthy rags. Folks, that was Old Covenant. If you've been made new in Christ Jesus, if your spirit has been recreated in Christ Jesus, you don't have any righteousness like filthy rags. You've got the righteousness of God. Now, if you want to say that that's filthy rags, I'll let you take that up with God when you get there. But that's not what it is. Do you understand what he's saying? Okay, let's pick back up in chapter... Oh, my goodness. I don't think we're going to finish with the first half. Let's read the first four verses again. For the law having a shadow of good things to come, the Mosaic system, having a shadow of good things to come, the things that came through Christ, the privileges and blessings that we have in Jesus, and not the very image of those things, Jesus, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereto perfect. In other words, make the comers or worshipers perfect forever. Couldn't do it. For then, if that were the case, would they not have ceased to be offered? Well, we know they weren't. We know they kept being offered year after year. These very priests that are going to read this letter were offering uh, sacrifice on the Day of Atonement at the time that they were offering or at the time that they were reading it. So we know they were continuing to go forward because that the worshipers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. That's a purged conscience. That's Paul coming to the understanding, making the jump, the change in his Christian life from, oh, I'm in such a conflict because my spirit wants to do the right thing and this flesh, this experience with sin that I still have in my flesh. And folks, you're always going to have a flesh that has experience with sin until Jesus comes back. And that experience with sin is always going to lead you off one way or another. The key is for you to grow in the knowledge of who you are in Christ so that it has less and less and less effect upon you. You'll overcome completely in some areas, but not in every area. Is it possible? Are you saying it's not possible, Pastor Mike? Folks, if Jesus tarried long enough for us to do it, if we could live long enough to handle it, yeah, you could overcome in every area. But you don't live long enough to cover everything. That experience in your flesh, that sin nature that first took hold of man has such a grip on our flesh that there's always going to be something. And like I said, I'm not, I'm not speaking negatively. I'm not, I'm not making a bad confession over you. I'm just saying that experience in your flesh is going to trip you up from time to time. And folks, it may be things that you don't even know. For example, um, is it possible for a Christian to live without sin? Yeah, according to their understanding. But let's say you get offended by something that I do. I know. Let's just imagine. (laughs) If you get offended by something that I do, if my heart was right in what I was doing, and I'm not aware that you are offended, then God doesn't count that to me as sin. Yet you may look at it and say, that dirty dog, look at what he did to me. And you might tell your neighbors about it. You might complain to your husband or your wife or your family or whatever. You might get a whole lot of people mad at me. And you might conclude, you may judge me to be a wrongdoer because of what I did. But if I had no evil intent 
and didn't know that I was, uh, wasn't, and I'm not aware of that, the fact that I did anything to offend you, God doesn't count that against me. So if you finally do what the Bible says, and you come to me and say, Pastor Mike, I need to, I need to share something with you. It really offended me when you did or said this and that and the other. Okay, now I've come to the knowledge of something. How I deal with it is going to determine whether I stay on the right side of love or whether I really commit sin. See, sin is, sin is judged a whole lot differently from our human vantage point than it is from God's. If I do something that I don't know, even if it's wrong, God doesn't hold that against me because I didn't violate my conscience in doing something. Once I find out about it, how I handle it is going to be a matter of whether or not I step outside of love. And a step outside of love is always going to be sin. Do you understand what I'm saying? Folks, what I'd like to encourage you to do is give yourself a break. Sin's been paid for. And confession of sin, when you do miss it, it's not God jumping on your back and looking down at you with a stern look and saying, I am so tired of dealing with you about this. It's Morpheus teaching Neo to jump higher. That's what the confession of sin is for the, for the Christian. It's the application of the perfect redemption. It's all it ever was intended to be. Oh, goodness. Where do we want to go with this? Let me try to get down through verse 14. I'll go quick, I promise. Verse 5. Wherefore, when he came into the world, talking about when Jesus came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of this book. Here's where it's said. In the volume of this book it is written of me. To do thy will, O God. Verses 5 through 7 is a quote from uh, Psalm 40, verses 6, 7, and 8, I think it is. But Paul, by the Holy Ghost, changes it up a little bit. Because Psalm 40, verse 6, starts off the same way. It says, he said, when he came into the world, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not. But notice in verse 5, it says, but a body thou hast prepared me. In uh, Psalm 40, in verse 6, it says something like, uh, but mine, eye, mine ears you have opened. Well, what's he talking about? The Holy Ghost is revealing that in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, where it says that my ears you have opened, that's talking about the preparation of the tabernacle. Remember, Paul's already talked about the tabernacle of the, the old covenant tabernacle in the wilderness as compared to Jesus tabernacle, which is his body. Now he's talking about this body, which was prepared as the sacrifice, but a body thou hast prepared for me. Now notice what else he says. He said, um, sacrifice. No, no, no. Where am I? Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body thou hast prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Why did God have no pleasure in sacrifices of, blood, of uh, uh, burnt offerings and, and other blood sacrifices? Because they couldn't get the job done. Well, then why did he give them something to do when they couldn't do, get the job done? Because he had to have some reason, some way to show blessing upon his people. Without the shedding of blood, there's no way that God could legally bless his people. 
That's what the Day of Atonement was about. It was to show them what they needed, show them they needed a Savior, show them the importance of sacrifice, and give God a reason and a legal way, a legal means, so that he could pour out his blessing upon them. That's what it was all about. It wasn't about what the Levites made it. Now in verse 8, Paul's going to, he's going to give his commentary, Holy Ghost commentary on those verses from Psalm 40. Above, when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offering and for offering of sin, thou wouldest not, neither had pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then he said, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. He's talking about the difference in the covenants. Remember we talked about the difference in covenants and testaments? When Jesus said, lo, I come to do thy will, Remember, Galatians, which this book was attached to, says in chapter 3 that God made the covenant not with Abraham and his seeds, plural, but Abraham and his seed, singular, which is Christ. What does that mean? That means that the covenant was made between God and Jesus for Abraham's behalf. Well, God did his part. He fulfilled his part. When does Jesus do his part? When he said... I will do your will. Here's Jesus taking hold of his responsibility. That's why the Garden of Gethsemane was such an important part of the crucifixion. It was Jesus making the final determination. I'd rather do it another way. But because this is the terms of fulfilling the covenant, I will do your will. That's where he took responsibility for his side of this. For what purpose? that he might take away the first, the first covenant, and establish the second. By the which will. Now, what will is he talking about? Is he talking about Jesus doing the Father's will? Is he talking about Jesus' will to, to follow God? No, he's talking about God's will to purge man for, from sin. He's talking about the sovereignty of God, God's original plan to cleanse man for sin three ways. Pay the price for it, satisfy the claims of justice, and finally reconcile God to man. Or man to God. Three things. That's what the will of God was. That's what this is talking about in verse 10. By the which will, God's will, we are sanctified. The word sanctified means holy and purified. Now, folks, whether you think you are or not, you are. Whether you've come to the realization that you are or not, you have been made holy by the blood of Jesus. You've been purified by the blood of Jesus. Your conscience may not be renewed to that reality, but it's true nonetheless. You may still be like Neo, stumbling over the small stuff, but the reality is you're a lot more than you're living up to. By the which will we are sanctified, made holy or purified through the offering of the body of Jesus. Notice the will and the offering are two different things. It's God's will, but it's Jesus offering it himself. Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all. That's why the eternal sacrifice, one-time sacrifice, is so important. Because if he has to make it again, if there is anything... And, and remember Hebrews chapter 6, where he says it's impossible if a person renews themselves, crucifies themselves uh, uh, to Jesus, crucifies Jesus to themselves again. That's why this is so important. If it takes another sacrifice, if it takes anything more than the blood of Jesus, then it wasn't a complete sacrifice. And if it's not a complete sacrifice, then you weren't really made holy. Which means you still owe the penalty and the price for sin. Which means all this other stuff we do with Christianity has just been a game. 
That's why faith is so important. Because faith says, I accept it because God's word says so. Not, I accept God's word, but we need something else. Again, here's another thing. People all the time want me to pray. Pastor Mike, pray this. They'll give me a scripture. Pray for my healing. Well, wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible say it's already yours? Yeah. Well, well, I'm leaving out of town. Pray. Uh, here's one of my favorites. Pray for traveling mercies. What the heck are traveling mercies? Find that in the scripture for me anywhere. The Bible already says that the angels of God surround you and protect you lest you dash your foot upon a stone. But some prayer is going to make it work. God's word's not enough, but some prayer is going to do it. Let's pray traveling mercies. Folks, that's why faith is so important because faith says it's done because God said so. The reason that the word of God is true is because Jesus paid the price. The word heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will never fail. It all comes back to the same thing. If Jesus' one-time sacrifice wasn't enough, then what are we doing playing at this stuff? Verse 11, and every priest here, he's now, and now he's going to go back to the shadow versus the image. The shadow versus the real. He said, every priest, now you priests, those of you that are there in Jerusalem operating in the temple, and every priest stands daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Why are you guys trying to hold on to something that can't work? That's what he's saying. And remember, that's what's happening with the Jews. That's what spurs this letter to begin with. He's writing to the Galatians because the Jews have sent people to try to compel them to keep the law and keep sacrifices and offer uh, blood sacrifices and be circumcised and all that kind of stuff. Paul is saying, why in the world are you trying to hang on to something that never can work? Jesus offered a one-time sacrifice. Why do you have to keep offering them over and over again when you know that the only reason you offer them over and over again is because they didn't work right the first time? And they never can work right to cleanse somebody. So why do you hold on to that? That's his argument. Pretty good argument, isn't it? But here's the contrast. Here's the image, the real, verse 12. But this man, Jesus, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. He's not making any more sacrifices, folks. That's what I get tickled about people misunderstanding the verse of Scripture where it says Jesus sitteth at the right hand of God ever living to make intercession for us. Some people have the idea that Jesus is on his knees praying and praying and praying and praying and praying. Why? His sacrifice wasn't enough? Now he's got to pray? That's foolish. No, the intercession, the joining us or the reconciling us together with God is proved by the fact that he's sitting in heaven. As our representative, he's sitting there as a representative for mankind, just like when Adam fell, he represented mankind. Jesus was sacrificed, offered himself as a sacrifice as the representative of mankind. The fact that he's seated at the right hand of God the Father means you have open access to the Father. It means you have been made righteous, purified, holy, purged from a conscience of dead works. But this one man, after he offered one sacrifice for sins, forever, forever, forever. Not until you mess up again. Forever. Sat down on the right hand of God. From henceforth, here's what he's been doing since the resurrection. From henceforth, expecting 
till his enemies be made his footstool. Now, folks, this has two applications. First, it certainly means the second coming. When Jesus comes back and the, the tribulation, the church is raptured, the tribulation begins shortly thereafter. Uh, we assume it's shortly thereafter. But then all the things happen, and then finally at the end of the seven years of tribulation, Jesus comes back and he rules the earth with a rod of iron. That will certainly put his enemies under his footstool. But there's a second application that's even more important to me, because when all that stuff happens, I'm going to be in heaven. I'm not going to bother about what's happening on the earth during the tribulation. I'm going to be in heaven experiencing the marriage supper of the Lamb. I don't know what they're going to eat there, but it's going to be good. It's called supper. Jesus was from South Galilee. Consequently, the second application is more important to me, and that is his enemies are made his footstool now through you. You're the one that he puts Satan underfoot. Satan is under your feet. You're the one that's supposed to renew your mind so that you operate according to who you've been made through the sacrifice of Jesus, to overcome this world, to look past the things that we can see to the reality of how things really are as revealed in the Word, so that we can live above this reality in the truth. There's a difference between truth and reality. A lot of things that are real in this world have nothing to do with the truth and contradict the truth, as a matter of fact. So live in the truth, live according to the truth and not according to the reality. From henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever. Here's this word perfect. It means to be made complete. It means to be restored to the original condition, to be brought to the place that God designed us to be. That has happened through Jesus. Termites and all. That's happened. It's not going to happen. It's already happened. Give me five more minutes. Verse 15. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds while I write them. And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. What's he saying? He's saying, you know what Jeremiah said in chapter 31. You remember Jeremiah promised this new covenant. Well, here it is. Now, folks, here's what it means for him to remember your sins and your iniquities no more. For us to be made perfect forever. Stop and think about what that means. It means to be brought to the condition that God originally designed man. How did God originally design man? Without sin, eternal, in God's image. That means perfect. Having been made perfect forever means very simply this. It means that there is no transgression, there is no pollution in any way, shape, form, or fashion in you that the judgment or guilt of sin still has to be paid for. God made Adam a perfect moral being. There was no sin, there was no error, there was no mess up, there was no mistake, there was nothing that he could be judged for. And that's what the Bible says you've been perfected unto. People wonder, bless their heart, people wonder, well, you think God's really on my side? Seriously? He's made you perfect through the sacrifice of Jesus. 
Yeah, but Pastor Mike, you don't know what I've done. Well, I probably do. And that doesn't change this a bit. Not one bit. So he's saying, this is the covenant that you guys have been talking about. This is the covenant that you rabbis preach. It's all through Jesus. Your sins and your, your sins and your iniquities, God remembers no more. Why? Because you were justified. Because the propitiation was made. God was satisfied with the sacrifice. And third, you were reconciled unto God. There's nothing more to remember. That's why confession is so important in our Christian life. Because when you confess it, God wipes it away. There's nothing to remember. It keeps your conscience clear. Doesn't change God. God's the same whether you sin or not. God's the same whether you confess your sins or not. But it is hugely important to you because it keeps your conscience clear. It keeps your conscience purged. Verse 18. Now where remission of sin, uh, remission of these, meaning sins, is, there is no more offering for sin. The word remission means freedom or pardon. Now where the freedom from sin is, there's no more an offering for sin. There's nothing else that has to be done. There's no work for you or I to do to bring us into God's good favor. Because that's a part of being perfected forever. Adam was perfectly in God's favor. Nothing could take him out as long as he was operating according to God's holy moral code. That's the code that you and I have been restored to. Not if we do right... We've been restored to it by the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is greater than your capacity to do wrong. Well, I'm doing a lot better preaching than you're doing saying amen. Do you understand what he's saying? That's what this means. Okay, what does all this mean then? What about our Christian life? What about our perfect standing before God? That's what he's talking about all the way through verse 20. He's talking about our perfect standing before God. What does this do for us? Verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh. In other words, there were two things that the Mosaic system couldn't do. They could not bring permanent peace because they couldn't purge your conscience. And number two, they couldn't bring you into the presence of God. Only the high priest could do that, and that was only one day a year and with great precaution. But our perfect standing through the sacrifice of Jesus means we have instant and constant access to the presence of God. Now, what's the new and living way he made? The new and living way was not the veil of the tabernacle. That's what separated the holy place from the holy of holies where the presence of God was. The new and living way of Jesus that Jesus made or inaugurated or really created was very simply his own flesh, his body. That his body is the means whereby we can enter into the presence of God anytime and every time we want to. Why? Because his body, the sacrifice, the offering of his body is what paid the price for sin. It's what satisfied the claims of justice. It's what reconciles you to God. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the precious blood of Jesus. Father, open our eyes to who we've been made by Jesus' sacrifice. Open our eyes, Father, to realize that there is no law for us left to keep, whether it's a law we impose upon ourselves or a law that others try to impose upon us. We live by the sacrifice 
of Jesus' precious blood. Thank you that we've been made perfect forever. Righteous in your sight, Lord. And Lord, whenever we miss it, you're on our side and you make a way for us to clear our conscience just simply by confessing our sins, asking you to forgive us and accepting that forgiveness and going forward. Father, help us to live up to who Jesus made us to be. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.